Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Dr. Noe Prince, international economist, investigative journalist, geopolitical financial expert, and outspoken advocate for economic reform. In this conversation, we talk about the history of the Fed, how the Fed really works, and why the Fed's policies have led to this permanent distortion where the financial markets and the real economy are irrevocably disconnected from each other. I really enjoyed this conversation. I also really enjoyed reading the book, and I think you will too. Dr. Nomi Prince, economist and author of Permanent Distortion, How the Financial Markets Abandoned the Real Economy Forever. Great to see you and great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be on. I'm really excited to talk to you, and I read your entire book, and you've also written I think seven other books, some bestsellers for folks who are watching and listening that include uh, Collusion, How Central Bankers Central Bankers Rigged the World, and All the President's Bankers, The Hidden Alliances That Drive American Power, and of course, your newest permanent distortion. And um, one of the things I want to start with, Nomi, is just your background. And you worked on Wall Street for decades. And then I love this, that you are an investigative journalist. And I was hoping we could kind of start there and kind of hear a bit about your evolution going from finance to investigative journalism and writing so many different books. What was it that made you want to take that path? Um, sure. And thank you for that question. Um, well, basically, yes, I, I have been around um, the street, as it were. Um, I'd gotten up to being a managing director at Goldman Sachs. I had created and run the financial analytics group as a senior managing director for Bear Stearns in London. Um, I worked at Lehman Brothers and, and uh, Chase Manhattan Bank as well. And um, I got to a point, and it was around 9-11, actually it was on 9-11, um, where I came to this realization that two things were happening. One, that, well, life for all of us is too short and we need to do what makes us um, most motivated, what we're most passionate about. Um, and at the time, I had already been questioning how Wall Street had really changed dramatically and not for the better um, with respect to uh, the relationship between banks and their and their corporate clients, Wall Street and the world and so forth. Um, but then on 9-11, really, um, it was when it really um, struck home to me, as so many things I think did to, to many Americans on that day, um, that, again, life is too short. And what I wanted to do is speak out um, and explain and make public a lot of what was going on because of the impact that Wall Street had and has on the real economy. And so I, I, I resigned shortly thereafter, and I had always um, been working with uh, analytics and, and um, explaining analytics with words, and then I'd always loved writing. Um, and so it seemed like a natural um, transition to move from banking for me into investigative journalism, into writing books, and into just um, explaining as I see it and from my experience, just, just what's going on, um, you know, behind the curtain. I really like that, Nomi. I, I took a lot of notes because these are great lessons too. Like, you know, life is too short and you have to do what makes you motivated. And also like you were talking about just some of the things that um, had changed on Wall Street that caught your attention. And I think one of the things I like about your writing is that you really highlight kind of the things that these underlying currents or forces that are at play, you really kind of identify it in a way that it's like, aha, that that makes a lot of sense. And it's like, we kind of sense it, but we don't really understand what's happening. And um, your book was very illuminating about this permanent distortion, this kind of great distortion that has taken place. And let's kind of start there um, for folks, like let's frame it up and then we can start to dive in deeper. What sure. is the permanent distortion? 
So permanent distortion is um, the environment that we're in right now, where the real economy and the markets have become so irrevocably disconnected from each other that the distortion um, of cheap money and easy money and all of that that has already been occurring since um, particularly the financial crisis of 2008 and went sort of on steroids in the wake of the pandemic in 2020 has manifested in not just um, a gap, but uh, a distortion between the two and within each of them because of money flowing so easily and so quickly into one place and therefore neglecting the other. So what we experience in our real life economies, um, in, in our personal budgets, all of that is, is really um, disconnected from what goes on in the financial markets and stocks and bonds and in financial um, transactions relative to real estate and so forth. And so I, I take a deep dive on, on that um, and, and how we've gotten to this point where I don't believe there is a normal to return to. It's not like we're going back to a sort of normal um, you know, relationship between the two. We are where we are and, and we're moving into a, a really transformative period from here. Mm -hmm. And that kind of frames it up as like a nice outline, too, for the conversation and, you know, kind of exploring the deep dive of like how we got here. And it seems like at the epicenter of this, uh, no, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is, is the Federal Reserve. And so for folks who are watching and listening uh, and, and maybe those who don't follow the Fed so closely, can you kind of like help them understand um, maybe let's just kind of start very basic, like the purpose of the Fed and maybe where they've started to diverge away from their stated mandate. Sure. Um, so the, the Fed was actually created by an act of Congress back in 1913, um, actually basically two days before Christmas. Um, so uh, sort of a bit quietly, covertly, but nonetheless happened um, in an act in 1913 um, when President Woodrow Wilson was president. But um, the blueprint for the print um, of for the act Federal Reserve, and not to go into too much history, but I think it's important to note, um, actually occurred in 1910 um, at a meeting at Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia, where uh, the attendance were six men, two of which were from Washington, four of which were from the banking sector. Um, and so um, they collectively created a blueprint for the Fed to ostensibly be there to act as a lender of last resort, or basically, you know, that sort of mom, dad, I need money now because like I crashed the car and like I need to pay it off and you know, blah, blah, blah. So, so it was acted like it was created as that with that ideal. But in reality, it was to plug holes in the banking system that had manifested because of the banking system taking its own risks. Um, in 1907, there was a big panic. Morgan, the JP Morgan um, family, the Morgan Bank was at the middle of that, and they just didn't want um, them to be sort of alone if another sort of panic were to were to happen. So all this got pushed to Washington, um, ultimately became the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve is 12 uh, reserve banks around the country. They're supposed to work on their regions um, in the in the Midwest, in the in the West Coast, East Coast, et cetera. But what happens ultimately, and where this goes so wrong, is that the Fed had another mandate in, in the 70s, and that was called a dual mandate. And the idea there was the Fed has this power um, to set interest rates, to, to create money, but it can do that ostensibly to maintain what they call full employment, 
and also to maintain price stability. And this is where today's inflation comes into play. Um, but but that's it. There was no limitations. There's no caps. There's no accountability. There's no transparency. There's no responsibility um, of the Fed to Main Street. And, and there never really has been um, that you can really link beyond what they say um, and, and the stories that are told about what they say, i.e. the Fed leaders. Um, so that's where we're at now. And that's why it's important to note that in the financial crisis period and also in the in the more recent pandemic period, the Fed was able to create in, in two belts uh, almost nine trillion dollars worth of really fabricated money, electronic money. We, we say printing, but what we mean is it's electronically created um, in order to provide liquidity or basically give this money to the banking system in return for debt, treasury debt from the government mortgage debt that the banking system had in fact created. Um, and this is where we're at now. Other central banks around the world have done the same thing. Um, and what that means in practice is that there's this artificial external body that effectively creates money. And as a result, distorts the relationship of how money goes to where it goes, where it goes, and, and more importantly for the real economy, where it doesn't go. Yeah. There's so many things that, again, I want to dive in on. And, um, you know, one of the things you brought up um, kind of in like explaining the Fed's history and its mandates is uh, you brought up this notion of like no transparency of the Fed to Main Street um, and beyond like what the story, like they, they haven't really been there for Main Street beyond the stories that they've put out there. And it's kind of like it brings up this notion of like the narratives that have been put out there. Um, wh like what let's let's dive in on those narratives like. I mean, your book very clearly kind of states like they're not there for Main Street, despite what they say. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe like what are the myths around the Fed and maybe some of the myths that Main Street bu might bu might be missing? So, again, and this this goes back to history, but I'll, I'll do real quick and get back to today because I, I think it's fascinating and important. Um, the history of the Fed when this act was being passed was a lot of conversations within the halls of Washington and, and Wall Street effectively. Um, and in fact, the advisor um, to President Wilson at the time was, was Tom Lamont, who was a senior executive at the Morgan Bank. So again, all, all sorts of tie-ins. And the idea was to sell it to the American people as this institution that would make sure that if there was a financial crisis, that money wouldn't actually get stuck on Wall Street, that it wouldn't just be hoovered by Wall Street, that it would have the ability to be sort of pushed long through this Federal Reserve System to all of the different regions around the country. And the idea that was narrated was therefore it will help the main streets around the country because it will loosen money when money is tight, when there is a crisis. So that was that was how it was sold from the get-go. And that's why um, the narrative has really continued in different ways um, throughout this, this over, over century of time. Um, but more recently, one of the things that happened in the financial crisis of 2008 was that the Fed stepped in, created almost four and a half trillion dollars worth of money, as did other central banks around the world um, in, in different amounts um, to save the banking system. But the narrative was it would save Main Street because without saving the banking system, Main Street wouldn't have access to their money and everything could fall apart. The economy could fall apart and so forth. So as a result, this money was manufactured. But where it went was through the Wall Street banks and into the financial markets. And that was back then when we had the pandemic happen. Um, and, and all of our economies were basically you know, shut down in different ways. And, and obviously there's a tremendous amount of anxiety and fear and uncertainty and all of that you know, related to the pandemic. Um, the government did step in and create you know, fiscal policy of giving checks um, to people on Main Street. And the story centered around that and still does that that caused inflation. But the reality 
is that the Fed created so much more money than what was given to people or in um, PPP loans to small businesses at the time. And that money is still effectively cushioning the financial markets. And so the narrative was it's going to help the economy. And the sub-narrative was that, well, not only that, now it's creating an inflationary situation. The reality um, is just the fact that the money was there created inflation in the housing market way before anybody was paying attention to it, uh, number one, and also inflation in, in asset prices and stock and bond prices. Um, now we see a situation where real inflation, what people pay at the pump, what they pay for food, what they pay for rent, um, has gone up substantially. And the Fed is saying, well, we're going to fix it. The reality is the Fed can't fix these things. But again, that's the narrative. And the sub-narrative in that there's a lot of little narratives that we're talking about. I mean, and this is this is this is really important um, to to think about, like untangling them. The sub narrative is somehow the Fed can make our gas prices go down or make our food prices go down, and and it can't. All all it can do is somewhat um, change the housing price structure. But the other side of that is rents go up, and that's inflationary. Um, and so the Fed's pretending to be an inflation hero, what, what ignored all of the inflation and financial assets that it it fueled over the years. Um, and as a result, we're actually seeing consumers and, and ordinary Americans being choked now because their interest rates, their borrowing rates have doubled in the last six months. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to explore this a little further with you um, because you, as you kind of point out, the Fed is pretending to be an inflation hero and their policies, as you put it, they're responsible for the inflation that we're seeing today. And as they raise rates, um, the idea is to like just crush, um, create more unemployment. Um, how do you kind of like, how do you kind of think about that? Well, it's to me, it's 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 one big convenient lie, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Because in in the middle of 2019, and I I, I rip into 2019 um, or dive into it, rip into it. Um, quite a lot because it's a really pivotal year before the um, pandemic happened and we went from a great distortion to a permanent distortion. Um, and during that time, uh, the economy was slowing down as it had done multiple times since the financial crisis of 2008. But the difference in 2019 was that the Fed had raised rates um, for a period of a few years before that, um, but they started to ease rates again. And they did it because they said the economy was softening. The reality was that Wall Street was having a problem with its own liquidity. It was having a problem lending to itself and lending to, to companies in something called um, repo agreements, which are basically loan repurchase agreements. And the wonk of that is just, they are loans overnight that have to get repaid the next day. So it's like, if I lend you money and I think you're good for it and you're gonna lend it back, to, you know, you're gonna give it back to me the next day with a little bit of interest, I'm good, I, I, I can do that. I, all the trust is there. But what was happening in 2019 was everybody was becoming, corporate-wise, a bad bet. And Wall Street itself was becoming a bad bet. And so Wall Street went to the Fed and said, hey, we need cheaper money just to sort of make this thing greased a little better. And the Fed turned around um, and started to reduce rates. And this was before um, the pandemic. And of course, um, when the pandemic hit separately, they cut rates to zero and manufactured um, all of this extra money. Yeah. Um, you, you brought up like the, the repos and um, you do such a great job in the book explaining things. And one of the things in the book that I didn't know and I want you to explain it to for the viewers is kind of like a bit of like the economics of like how the Fed works. I don't know if you want to call it the economics of the Fed, but like how they kind of run or operate um, like their funding and expense, like how that 
machine works? Because that was really illuminating. Can you share how that works and why that also matters? So, so first of all, the Fed is, um, even though it's the Federal Reserve, um, it, it's not actually an official body of the government, which which means allegedly it has political independence um, in terms of how it does its policies, where rates are, how much money it creates, what it um, it does with that money. Um, so, so, so that's on the one hand. Um, but the reality is that um, it was created as a sort of mini company or corporation wherein each Fed Reserve, each of the 12 banks, members were kind of like shareholders in each of the Feds. So for example, the and, and on a proportionate basis. So the largest banks, for example, had a larger share in their own respective Federal Reserve. So the Wall Street banks had a larger share in the New York Fed, um, and therefore in that portion of the full Federal Reserve system and, and so on. Um, and that's why Wall Street banks are bigger. So for the most part, they had a, a greater percentage. They also had seats on the board of the New York Fed and so forth over history. And what that means is, um, unlike us, like people in the Main Street, um, they actually have an ownership um, of the Fed and they get paid a dividend on, on that ownership, aside from what they might get from the Fed in terms of access to cheap money and this injection of, of fabricated money in return for the debt that they have on their books. Um, so that's one of the mechanisms. And the other interesting mechanism is that when the government issues debt, um, I borrows money in the form of treasury bonds, treasury securities. Um, they do this through selling these, these bonds through Wall Street banks um, called primary dealers of the bonds. And then Wall Street sells them off to, to China, to Japan, to pension funds, to wherever. Um, but in the situation that we've seen recently with, with um, quantitative easing or the Fed creating this money out of nowhere, um, what they've done is they've effectively bought back some of that government debt that the banks were supposed to sell. And they have been keeping it on their own books. So it's like the government borrows money in the form of debt. It goes to Wall Street to be sold off, for which Wall Street gets a cut. But if Wall Street doesn't sell it off, well, then Wall Street can now sell it back to the Fed, and the Fed will pay interest on that money back to Wall Street. So it's sort of like the government's paying interest to Wall Street. Um, but 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 it's a weird sort of arrangement, and it goes back to how the Fed was was initially structured. Yeah, it's it is a, it's a strange arrangement. Sometimes maybe it feels like things are opaque or complex and people probably just walking around they're not aware of like how this the system uh even works like do you ever think or i mean you're, the title of the book is obviously permanent distortion so it implies like there's a lot of, there's permanency here but um i want to just add a question about the fed do you think the fed will ever be reformed and if so how and if not why not <laughs> oh that's that's a really great question um so why I say permanent is because I believe that we will have another crisis at some point um, or things will get weak at some point, whether the economy looks too far weakened from what's gone on most recently, whether something else happens, whether Wall Street needs money, whatever, and the Fed's going to go back in and create money um, and, and enhance that whole process it's in right now without oversight, again, without laws, without us as people being able to elect uh, the people that actually run the Fed or get rid of them or have any sort of connection to them from an accountability or response responsibility standpoint. Um, so that's a problem. Uh, but, but but the other thing is that there have been, since the financial crisis, um, some suggestions uh, in politics um, on the Hill to audit the Fed, uh, to make the Fed more transparent in terms of how it's 
effectively managing that money uh, that it's creating and the debt that it has on its books um, a little bit more closely. Um, and, and that's never really gotten traction in, in Congress. Um, one person that brought it up was Senator Ron Paul um, back in the um, uh, in the early days post the financial crisis and also on the other side of the spectrum, um, Senator Bernie Sanders. And, and I, in fact, was on a committee um, that he had created back um, in, in 2011 to consider reforming the Fed, auditing the Fed, making the Fed more transparent. Um, and it, it was it was very difficult and, and got no traction ultimately um, in Congress. And I think most of the reason for that and why the Fed will not be reformed, um, certainly not by a, a, a legislative action, is, is because most of Congress buys the story. Most of Congress buys the story that whatever the Fed does, cutting rates, creating money, raising rates, changing whether they're buying money now or later. All of that is for the good of the economy. And, and as long as that narrative is, is on the lips of, of you know most Congress people, and this is on both sides of the aisle, um, there's just not a lot of wherewithal there to, to question what the Fed's doing. And as a result, we through um, you know, our elected officials have given a lot of power, um, more than it was even created to have, to this body that we don't actually elect ahead for. That's see, that's like what the, that right there, like those few sentences you just put there, like that they have more power than it was created to have, and it's not even an elected body. Like it's kind oh. of mind-boggling, isn't it? Like that just like is is it all about like what do you think it's like? What's at the heart of it? Is it the the power that it's amassed or? Well, I, I think I think it's been allowed. I either there has no, been no backlash, not from people, and 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 certainly not from Congress to try and um, rearrange um, what its mandate is and how it can be allowed to to do that mandate. Again, there's no caps to how much money it can create or when or how. Um, so, so I think that's one thing. Um, and and you know the the other scary thing is that we don't really um, we don't really question um, the fact, for example, and this is really scary, particularly today, um, that when the, the head of the Fed, when Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says things like, well, the economy is going to take some pain, but we have to fight inflation, wages are too high, you know, there are too many jobs, you know, it's like, first of all, because they're not accountable to us, I, he's not, the Fed isn't, their, their job security has nothing to do with it. We cannot fire them, right? So, so they have a, a job security and a wage and salary security in those positions that ordinary Americans simply don't have. And yet again, going back to that power they've amassed, you know, they, they can say things like, well, it's going to be a bit painful. Yeah, wages are too high and, and have that narrative just mostly, mostly um, be accepted as somehow inevitable um, in terms of how they run their policy. Yeah, they they also, um, I guess, like more recent years too. Like they have a, you mentioned like, they have like the job security too. They they also have a credibility problem too. Like, what are your thoughts on the credibility of the Fed and like some of the behavior that's come to light or out of the Fed? Well, I think there's definitely more scrutiny of the Fed by um, some of the media, and um, you know, in terms of, hey, what are you guys doing? 
Um, and especially right now, I think I think there was two credibility problems, and I think they're trying to overcorrect one by by creating another problem. Um, one was that um, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell did not um, seem to note that inflation was rising when it actually was. Um, he didn't like pick up on inflationary being anything more than what he called transitory um, until much later. Um, so, so that's a problem. And, and it's something that his predecessor had some issues with, too, because Ben Bernanke back in the day um, didn't, despite getting so much information about this problem, admit that there was a problem in the housing market and that the Fed was just kind of letting banks make it worse and worse until there was a, a, a crisis. Um, you know, and so there's this this lack of um, ability to, to acknowledge or understand or, or process what's really happening throughout the real economy by these people. Um, and yet again, we're not able to do anything about you know, getting rid of them or, or changing their policies. Um, and, and, and so this 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 remains a problem. Yeah. So in the process of coming up with the thesis for the book um, and this notion of this being a permanent distortion, was there a moment that you recognized it as just purely a distortion? And then like there was a moment where you're like, OK, this is more permanent. This is this is going to be transformative uh, for the future. Where was that moment for you? What was that? That is that is such a great question. And, and there was a moment, there was a month um, and a moment in that month. It was July 2020. Um, and, and so before that, just backtracking before the pandemic, um, I, I realized and I read about wrote about this in <clears throat> collusion, how central bankers rigged the world, um, that um, central banks led by the Fed around the world had effectively followed that leadership or or that first in line thing that was going on from the Fed respect to other 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 nations, central banks to create money and to bring the average cost of money down to zero for the for the developed countries, for the larger countries on the planet. Um, and so that was definitely a major factor in creating a distortion between how markets behaved during that period of time um, and how the real economy was pr pretty much staggering along throughout the developed world in, in many ways um, around a one, two percent growth rate while the, the stock market was going up by six, seven, eight times um, its growth rate um, during that period. I, I have more stats breaking that down in the book, but I mean, there was, there was a significant difference between the two. But where I thought that that distortion became permanent in July 2020 was at the point at which the Fed effectively had doubled the size of its book in like a couple of months versus several years. Um, you know, and so at that point, um, I said, you know, this is not a, th this is not a behavior. This is not a policy that was a one off. Um, this is not even going to be a policy that that's a twice off. And it just happens to be magnified because we've just had this this crazy pandemic that um, that did lead to economic shutdowns and everything um, that happened because of it. And it's still leading to supply chain problems because disruptions are still not back to normal um, and add on to that other problems. And, and you have all these inflationary pressures. I mean, it, definitely in that time period, in many ways, the Fed's policy, as well as what happened, um, created more of a distortion, but I believe it became permanent with respect to monetary policy, the relationship of the Fed to money, to markets, and money to the real economy, um, that it just became something where if we see a crisis again, whatever's deemed a crisis, a liquidity problem, a whatever to the Fed, um, and by extension, other central banks that have to follow along because currencies in the world are related to the dollar, um, they're going to 
reduce rates again, or they're going to buy bonds again, or they're going to find some other thing that they don't call QE or quantitative easing that's going to still look like buying bonds or, or creating um, liquidity or extra money along the sides to the financial system, and the whole thing's going to continue. So, so it was at that moment um, that I realized, wait, we're not, we're not going back to we're not going back to anything. We might have periods like now where, where rates are being raised and conversations about, oh, this is this is the Fed now, you know, being this different Fed happening. Um, but I think we're only in the middle of those conversations. I don't think we're at the end of a permanent distortion. Yeah. Um, so we're going to probably see like this movie play out again the next time things get really brutal. Um, there are a number of like kind of, I don't, know if you would call them this like this is kind of how I interpret it when I read your book it's almost like there are a lot of symptoms that maybe emerged uh from these policies and the distortion and um I guess the one that's top of mind right now is inflation and you're mentioning like even with them raising rates um it's probably not going to do much to solve for inflation do you think like inflation is just going to be more persistent more rampant what what's kind of your outlook um on inflation yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's going to certainly remain higher than the 2% that, that, that the Fed and other central banks are targeting, um, at least developed central banks are, are targeting as their um, wish list uh, item on the top of that wish list item for, for, for inflation as a whole. Um, but inflation this time, and this is where um, the Fed is really misfiring um, and talking about fighting something that it missed part of and it can't fight the rest of is really um, comes down to two kinds of inflation. One is um, the inflation that's created because of all of that gush of money. And again, not individuals, you know, it's not the people with the $600 checks that are able to lift the housing market to 30 to 40% increases in certain areas, um, you know, at the time. I mean, that, that's not what's going on. They, they, they might be somewhat related, but but that's not where the where the, the main inflationary pressures are coming into the housing market, for example. That was because a boatload of money was available. It was available cheaply. It was available uh, quickly. And people that either had money could borrow money, companies that, that it could do the same things, private equity consortiums and so forth, just, just, just went whole hog um, in where they could. Um, with respect to the other kinds of inflation, um, rent on the other side of that, I talked a little bit about that before, the other side of house, housing prices going up so quickly um, because of this inflated amount of money that's being injected so fast um, into the system, it means that people who actually want to buy a house, um, especially now with rates double what they were um, six, seven months ago, are, are priced out of the market. So even if prices come down a little bit from here because rates are higher um, for, say, the middle tier of the market, um, it still means that people are going to see and continue to see major rate, um, major um, rent hikes or rent increases because landlords have a captive um, audience. So that part of inflation is going to stick around. It might it might dampen a little bit depending on the relationship between house prices and rents, but it's going to be there for a while. Um, food and fuel. Nothing the Fed did or didn't do had anything to do with um, oil prices ratcheting up or natural gas prices, which um, our country, other countries, um, you know, throughout Europe, UK, and so forth, rely on for um, electricity um, or rely on um, or need for it to be reserved to use for electricity going forward in time as weather changes and so forth. You know, we should go into winter. We need more uh, electricity to heat our homes. That comes from natural gas. There's problems um, along the pipeline of that. Um, and, I, and, and so those are the things that the Fed can't control, 
but they they really impact the, the level of inflation. Um, geopolitics impacts the level, of course, of oil prices, which, which impacts that component of inflation. Diesel prices, um, which are rising right now, that component of inflation. So all of that's um, a component of, of inflation that we feel in different ways um, that the Fed can't really control. The same thing with food, which requires fuel to get from A to B, or requires fuel to um, basically create fertilizer to allow food to be plenished, plus geopolitics um, and, and, and just disruptions happening throughout the world. All of that makes food prices um, higher. So that's going to be a part of inflation. Again, none of this is an inflation that the Fed can do anything um, about, but it is going to mean there's going to be persistence there um, in, in, in higher inflation than we've been used to. At the same time, the Fed is, again, increasing rates and, and making it harder for um, for kind of ordinary Americans, most people uh, throughout the country, to to um, to borrow when they need to for, for a home, for a car, for whatever. So, so there'll be, um, you know, harder impact um, for individuals because rates are higher than um, for sort of larger companies and so forth who can pass those hikes on to consumers who will then get hit twice. Um, and again, this is not something the Fed can really do anything about. Yeah. Um, I liked this line in your book. Um, you wrote, the Fed and other central banks' underestimation of inflation's impact on real people was one, one of the most tone-deaf components of permanent distortion. And I suppose that goes back to like the whole transitory narrative yep. that we saw. If there's if, if their actions now likely aren't going to impact inflation and bring it down, was there a moment where they could have done something to maybe prevent or at least mitigate somewhat the mess that we've gotten into by acting sooner? What do you think? Well, they, they could have mitigated the, the, the home um, price and, and rental part of uh, inflation, I think, because when they were manufacturing money so quickly, um, in the in the pandemic period, um, and this was on top of having done it beforehand in the post financial crisis period, they weren't really paying attention to how out of whack um, home prices were, were were getting, and who was buying those homes, and who could afford um, to finance, you know, one, two, three, four, and five homes, and and so forth, and therefore increase the rents for um, people that couldn't afford. Home. So, so that was something they could have um, noticed or been paying attention to at the time, which which they weren't. So that part of inflation, um, they could have not created as much money. They they could have um, you know had some accountability as to where some of that money was going, um, which is never going to happen through the banking system or or something that they could have kept a lid on some of that relative to um, you know what what folks are paying for. Um, for for living in, in in rental property, so I mean that that that's one aspect they could have done something about, but didn't. Um, with respect to the supply chain disruptions, with respect to oil, with respect to food, um, there, there's really not much that that they could have done. But but the danger is that they are 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 not acknowledging that they they can't fight all inflation. They just put it, put it into sort of one bucket. Um, wage inflation, a hot labor market, uh, and, and they kind of don't dissect out food or fuel, but they also don't completely avoid pretending they have the power to fix all kinds of inflation. Um, and so that they could have done differently. They just could be honest about the whole situation and just, you know, sort of not pretend um, that they can fix something they can't fix by by hurting um, something on the other side, raising rates so much so quickly. Um, that they that they could do more slowly. I think right now what they should do, um, you know, is 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 step back for a moment. You know, you take a pulse. Actually, actually watch this show. You know, actually have, um, you know, 
have a have a hard think as to how what they are doing is impacting the real economy. If wages really are keeping up with the part of the inflation they can't control, and if not, stop attacking them. I mean, you know, be okay with a vibrant labor market and and just you know sort of don't overstep your boundaries. Yeah, like as you put it, be honest about the whole situation. You know, um, Nomi, just kind of putting on that investigative journalist hat, if you will, if you were one of the journalists um, sitting in the Fed Chair Jerome Powell presser, like post FOMC, what would be your like number one most pressing question that you'd want to put to the Fed Chair? This is a very, very timely question because I literally had this conversation with one of those reporters Um between us off record about that very question. I was like, could you ask this question? Um, and, and whether that happens or not, I don't know. But um, And the question is, do you, uh, Jerome Powell, actually think that inflation will get down to 2% by anything you are doing? And if not, why is it that you are prepared to cause pain to real Americans with this particular policy? I just want to know that I I I do know, um, and and I know this from also the reporters or, or or some of them that go to these meetings that he has become very good at avoiding direct questions like that and and giving direct answers in in general. Um, but it would be nice to know. It yeah. would be nice to have on record. And maybe like just being more transparent might be more well received and actually help on the PR side of things. I don't know. I but, would think people would appreciate it. Um, you mentioned at, at the end of your book, and I just have to find it, but um, you've given talks at the Fed, the IMF, the World Bank, many, many other places. Um, and I don't know like, how recent those were, what the specific topics were. Maybe they kind of tie into this, but what, what did you bring up? Maybe what, what can you share that you brought up um, at the Fed and how was it received? Well, so the, the last talk I gave at the Fed and, and um, was um, at an annual conference that also included um, IMF and World Bank officials as well, central bank officials around the world. I've had other conversations and still do with, with people at the IMF and World Bank um, subsequent to that. But the one that had to do with the Fed, which was, which was the last time I, I spoke um, publicly or effectively was invited to speak at the Fed, um, was about this relationship that we're talking about between Main Street and Wall Street. And it, um, it was right before they they raised rates for the first time in 2015. Um, so it was a while back, but it was also at a point where they were looking at that policy pivot to tightening rates, having had them at 0% since the financial crisis. Um, and so the, the talk I was asked to give was on, around the concept of, well, how come Wall Street, who's obviously had some benefit, even they had to admit that from from these policies, um, isn't helping Main Street more. I mean, that was literally what I was supposed to talk about. And um, the first thing that I I said was, well, well, because like they don't have to. I mean, you're you're not making them. You've basically given them all of this, you know, carte blanche in terms of money you fabricated, everything that you've given them. I was very honest about it. And 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 as a result. Um, they've never had to be accountable to where that money went, if it indeed, in fact, went into um, more small businesses or individuals relative to you know, share buybacks or, 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 you know, sort of the, the corporate um, you know, stock and option hierarchy um, in, in, in Wall Street and, and around corporate America. You didn't you didn't you didn't have to um, they didn't have to answer to, to anyone. 
um, and, and they and they still don't, and and neither do you. Um, and so that was the last time I, I, I spoke there. I mean, a lot of times when I when I speak with people um, in different, mostly regional or, or um, international um, offices of the World Bank or the IMF, I, I talk about this actually in collusion, um, which uh, one one of which came out in 2018, the hardback in 2019, the paperback um, is about how their countries actually um, have to react um, to the Fed, um, the countries they represent, so the regional sort of officers of, of, of the larger um, World Bank and IMF, um, how they deal with what happens when one country has the ability to just slash rates, um, like the United States, and everybody has to follow, and how that impacts their countries. What happens now, for example, when the Fed's raising rates, and they have to raise rates to keep up um, with their currency relationships to the dollar, which is harder and harder. Um, and, and so what's the real fallout um, at the end of the day for, for countries outside the U.S., particularly um, developing countries, emerging market countries, um, relative to the Fed's policies? Um, it was a similar question back in 2015. It's just that those central bankers from the, the smaller nations um, didn't really have the floor. Um, so, so, so now a lot of those conversations are, are more, um, you know, just sort of more off of uh, major conferences or anything. They're, they're, they're separate conversations. Yeah. Yeah. You just mentioned your bestseller collusion and like how the other kind of central banks, they have must have to go almost like lockstep, I suppose. What happens What yeah. happens when they diverge or like, what are the consequences or, and why, well, like, why do they have to be so lockstep? Well, they have to be just because most, most reserve bank or central banks have to have a certain amount of, of money allocated to dollars as do the banks in their country. And that's predominantly to, to trade and transact, um, across the across the globe. Um, and so with the dollar so strong, for example, right now, um, even with other central banks raising rates and saying they're doing this to fight inflation because we're all we're all buying into this sort of inflation narrative, even though their economies are weakening. For example, in the UK, there's high inflation because of very high energy prices. But on the other hand, um, the economy is sort of crumbling as of you know, several prime ministries in, in, in the last um, you know, this year. So so a lot of problems they're having, but they still have to raise rates and say it's to fight this inflation. Again, they can't control their fuel inflation costs or the energy uh, inflation costs, but they can't have a situation where the pound, which is already weak to the dollar, gets too weak relative to the dollar because then you can't um, compete on, on the global stage in terms of trade and in terms of just um, liquidity of financial systems. So, so central banks around the world um, have to follow the Fed also because um, they have to follow the dollar, and what the Fed does also impacts the level of the dollar. Got it. Yeah. Um, in the book, I, I want to go back to kind of like the symptoms of this distortion. You had a whole chapter on the retail meme stock trading bonanza that we saw take place um, in 2021. And um, how does that tie in to the Fed's policies and why is that kind of symptomatic of it? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, again, that chapter, and as does my crypto chapter, come out of this, um, you know, who, who was outside of that tent, basically, of cheap money going towards um, the larger firms, to Wall Street, to private equity companies, to hedge funds that could short companies um, for just no reason except to sort of make a profit. Um, and then you had all these retail investors coming um, into um more of, of sort of collective power on their parts um, and a lot of, you know, social media driving that and communications across social media and Reddit and so forth, um, where they could share information about how to trade, what to look for, 
um, you know, what the uh, hedge funds were, were doing in terms of shorting certain names um, and kind of fight back a little bit to, um, to, to what Wall Street has been doing um, forever, which is also talking to each other about positions and how things are going to go and, and, and what can be done with respect to um, you know, trading profits. And so it just became a more spread out, um, retail-driven um, you know, phenomenon. And of course, there's more technology today now than there has been to do fractional um, investing, fractional trading, um, everything online and so forth. And so there, there's a lot more sort of tools um, now. And a lot of that, again, grew in the wake of the pandemic. It wasn't just because people were home doing nothing. Um, it, it, it was also because um, there was a sense, and, and I talk about this, that, you know, we um, as retail investors need to basically assert our own power in this whole equation. Um, and now is the time to to do that. And of course, there are there are trading risks to doing that as well. And I talk about those. But but I think that the the post pandemic moment um, was met by a, by a large rise in retail. And I think right now retail is kind of backed off because of um, the uncertainty in the market, um, predominantly related to rate hikes, the, the the speed of them, inflation, and so forth. But um, I don't think they've gone away. I think it's just sort of a, a bit of a waiting period um, from that perspective. Yeah, I think it was like for me, it was like almost it was like a it's like almost a little bit of a surprising chapter, too. But it made sense um, in the in the context of permanent distortion. And um, you also had a chapter it was a deep dive um, on like how crypto fits into this as well in Bitcoin. And um, I would love to get your thoughts there. And do you think like Bitcoin is more of like, you know, like kind of like all like like I don't know how to describe it. Like way to get out of this current system. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to describe it. And I, I do talk about the the timing of the history, and it's a, it's obviously a very short history of of the evolution of Bitcoin from the wake of the financial crisis in the end of two thousand eight into two thousand nine, where um, the technology that the programming um, elements of, of Bitcoin with respect to cryptography. Um, have been around for quite some time um, in terms of you know encoding information and and adding data chains and blockchains and so forth. But where where those two things met with um, f- at first small but then rising popularity and conversation um, is that as the Fed is creating money and as we know that that the dollar and other currencies. Um, or, or what we call them as, as fiat currencies, meaning they're backed by their government's um, ability to repay government debt, um, and of course the power of those governments in the, in, in the world as well, um, that that's like a system onto of itself, um, where the Fed kind of does what it wants, other central banks do, um, in terms of major central banks, they follow the Fed, money gets created, debt gets created and rebought by the Fed, Wall Street, you know, sort of profits on both sides. I mean, all, all of that system um, is tremendously isolated um, with respect to the the major players in it, and 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 Bitcoin um, in particular um, came at a time to to combat that um, and provided a, a potential means for for individuals to to um, have a internal financial system external to the one that that. Um, has such an impact on our lives. Now, of course, there's a lot of infighting about that in terms of fighting between um, the, the crypto world and how, um, from the standpoint of a central bank, digital currency or some sort, the central banks are kind of fighting and saying, well, we, we, we're we going to create one of those or, or something like it so we can 
um, have that sort of data technology component to currency, but control, again, the narrative um, and probably not have a cap to um, central bank digital currency as they don't have a cap to creating regular fiat currency. Whereas again, Bitcoin, the idea was, you know, there, there's a limitation here, which is not something that's in the main system. It has the potential to be used um, technologically across um, borders and in between people for small businesses and so forth. And it, it had, I talk about this in chapter, it still has um, a lot of buy-in from other types of, of, of financial mechanisms um, online, um, as well as, you know, new new online mechanisms as well as old ones like like visa and mastercard which were accepting uh payment in bitcoin so, so there's a lot of evolution there that i think um i think we're still at the very beginnings of yeah at the very beginnings um to kind of begin to round out this conversation um you know permanent distortion as you put it means there's no going back to how things were and you also talk about it in the book is we're kind of going through this the biggest transformation the world has ever seen. So I want to talk about maybe solutions or possible solutions. What needs to be done? And to follow that, what happens if nothing is done? Um, well, I think what needs to be done is, is, is the real economy needs to kind of take power back from um, the financial system that, that receive the, the part that receives um, sort of money injected into it from no natural way or cause or, or production or means. And, and and what I mean by that is not that we don't have a stock market or that we don't have a bond market because I think we need capital markets um, as the financing mechanisms they were literally designed to be um, to, to help support small businesses and, and, and to help grow the economy and medium-sized businesses and so forth. But I think there can be better interaction um, between the two and also um, that more money should be invested in the real economy that's infrastructure that's that's energy across the energy space from from new energy transformative technologies um, to sustainable energy to better better ways of capturing um, current energy whether that's even you know cleaner um, fossil fuel type energy but but also throughout the gamut um, of energy and I do see um, that being a major driver um, in the real economy and something to focus on. Um, from the standpoint of money, I, I, I do think we need, um, and, and perhaps are at the cusp of a, a transformation of getting outside of the main system. And I feel that we have there's a lot of hope in the decentralized financial world. Um, right now, it's not receiving at this particular moment the capital or the attention that it did say last year because things have gotten more volatile and uncertain. Um, but I think that's still a viable path to, to changing um, sort of our relationship with money um, from the standpoint of the real economy, who's giving it to whom, whether there can be more um, P2P, sort of B2B type of investments across um, sort of digital platforms that don't don't require um, the big banks anymore, and so therefore don't require the Fed. Um, so, so I think we're we're at the cusp of a lot of that transformation, and I also think from the standpoint of generally building things um, and using real hard assets to build real things um, is is very important. So whether that's steel or copper, um, whether that's silver. You know that you know whether that's lithium or nickel or or other things to to fuel new types of energy. This is something that we um, are going to see just accelerate um, in the years to come from this standpoint, and and that's the positive. Now the negative is that the Fed continues to fuel these crises, which it is, um, and then and then overreact, um, which it does, and and that that creates destability really in in, in the overall 
uh, system. Um, but I, I think that's going to continue to happen as well. Mm-hmm. As you um, wrote in the book, like the uh, emerging from the phenomenon are five main economic sectors that you outlined, new energy, infrastructure, transformation, transformative technology, new money. And number five, which was interesting to me, was meta reality, uh, in parentheses, the metaverse and artificial intelligence. What do you mean by the last one, the meta reality? So the last one, yeah, thanks. I, so the last one I, I parenthesis the metaverse because um at, at the time met- metaverse had this sort of um more the the um the known sort of element to it um versus meta reality I, I think of it as meta reality what i mean by that is not just technologies um you know for example in the gaming um section of of the economy or or in or in entertainment but but basically technologies where we're using meta reality um, and artificial intelligence to 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 make our lives better. So, for example, and I, I've got ex- lots of examples in there, but like health technology, where um, you know you can be developing um, some form of, of 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 surgical technology or innovation by by someone very experienced, as well as the technology associated with that on one side of the world, but it's being applied um, to someone receiving a surgery on the other side of the world, and all sorts of um, areas where we're using sort of the virtual. Um, in order to basically supplement and share um, information and technology um, across the world that can better our lives. So it's it's that element um, of, of meta-reality as well that, that, that I talk about in the book. Yeah. And again, what happens if nothing is done? Do we get another crisis? Do markets sell off? And then it's like rinse and repeat, same kind of policies we've seen? Like, what, what do you think happens? Well, I, I, I don't think anything's going to get done in terms of changing the Fed's ability to create money, except how it really deals with itself. Um, and, and that's hard to know. Right now, again, we're in, you know, we're in this tightening period. I, I do believe that the, the Fed will, um, after uh, after its November meeting, go into um, less sizable hikes um, and then eventually neutrality next year and, and potentially cuts the following year. I mean, that's sort of what I see happening. But a crisis could um, accelerate any of that um, in terms of bringing the Fed back to a standpoint of um, back to where it is now. So not back to the past, but back to sort of the, the, the more recent present <laughs> where um, it, it can create more money or, or again, find some way that doesn't sound like what it's already done, but actually is to inject money um, into the system, perhaps more, more covertly, perhaps with different words, um, but with the same sort of effect. And, and this will be because um this the, the 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 crises that that are already going to happen now because of what the Fed has done in the last few years, you know, in, in inflating money, increasing rates very quickly, hurting the real economy, you know, at some point creating a liquidity crunch on Wall Street. Um, all of this is is stuff we've seen um, in different ways already, and and the remedy from their perspective has been to um, to to create more money, and I just I just I just see that sort of bumpy pattern. Uh, continuing to play out. Nomi, I've learned so much from you. I want to pass it back to you because I want you to to let folks know where they can go and learn more or follow you or, you know, pick up this book or pick up your other books. Uh, Where would you like to send folks? Um, Well, thank you for that. I I do have a website which pretty much has everything in it, (laughs) which is www.nomiprins.com. And that I'm also on on social media at Nomi Prins on Twitter, um, various places. And um, I, I, I do hope that, that people will uh, pick up or listen to audibly um, permanent distortion because 
in it um, and relative to my other books, I really do um, both connect the history and take um, the deeper dive into the recent past, the present, and, and, and talk about what's going to be happening in the future and how we can prepare um, from the standpoint of our own personal economies, the economy in general, um, from an investment perspective for our futures and so forth. So um, I, you know, I just, I, I hope people get a chance to, um, to pick it up and, and take a look or listen. Definitely pick it up. I did the audiobook and I have the Kindle um, version <laughs> as well. Well, Dr. Nomi Prince, economist and author of Permanent Distortion, I thank you so much for being so generous with your time and really helping illuminate on so many different um, issues out there and really educate us on all things regarding the Fed. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I did as well. Thank you so much yourself. Thank you, Nomi.